A reading, a reading of Psalm 149. Praise to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Let his faithful people rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. Before I approach the word, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you have been God since all of creation and in all of eternity past. And in your love for us, you have written us your word, which instructs the simple to make us wise. And I pray that we would humbly be instructed by your Holy Spirit this morning. I ask for your help in preaching with accuracy and pray for your blessing as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Before I begin preaching in earnest, I want to mention a book that I read part of uh, as I prepared for this. This is a book I've mentioned in the past. It's by Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, It's called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Uh, One chapter in this book talks about slavery, and she writes with a lot of historical information and a lot of carefulness with how she handles the scriptures, and uh, I have a couple copies of it. If you're interested in that question or the other 11 questions that she talks about, uh, I would encourage you, just ask me for a copy today, and I'll get you one to borrow, or if you want to give the church a couple bucks, you can keep it. Um, It's a good book, and it it was a helpful resource. And so I want to do something now as I begin my message that I think will help the whole church appreciate Pastor Chris even more than we already do. Um, And that is, uh, I'm going to lead us in a song. Um, I I think it'll be a song that uh, a few of you know and are familiar with, but as I preach a passage that talks a little bit about slavery and slavery in the New Testament and talk a little bit about slavery as it exists today, I want to begin with this premise that the New Testament cares most about eternal freedom, and secondarily about earthly freedom. The New Testament cares most about eternal and heavenly freedom, and then secondarily about earthly freedom. And there's a song some of you may know uh, called Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. And I want to ask you to just sing that first verse with me. Would, Would you sing with me? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I asked you to sing that song 
Because slavery is an evil thing of earth. And yet, in the light of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ, it's a thing that even today can grow strangely dim. Many people have looked at the Bible, um, and some have, I think, wrongly used it to justify the existence of slavery. And yet, the passage that I am about to read may actually support that conclusion. When I read these verses in a few moments, I think if you're honest, all of us will wrestle with the question, why did God include these instructions to the church in Ephesus where Timothy was serving as a pastor? And in fact, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Timothy with me now. Uh, I've been preaching through this series for a few months now. Paul has helped young Timothy understand what it means to be a faithful minister, how the church should function and operate. He's told Timothy how to relate to different types of people, whether they're older men or older women or younger men and younger women, whether they hold official offices in the church or or whether they are lay people. And now he has two verses where he tells young Timothy how to instruct slaves. The ESV uses the term bond servants in a sort of attempt to help us wrestle with that this slavery is a little bit different than what we're familiar with from American history. But the simple word is just the word slave. And so if you haven't already, please turn to 1 Timothy. I'm going to be in chapter 6. And I'm just going to take two verses today and talk about slavery and what it means to live as a free Christian when you are in bondage in this world. Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, They must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, you can understand how verses like that could be used to support an institution of slavery. And as we continue to wrestle with race relations today, this is not a topic that is easy to discuss. And so I can't say everything that could be said Uh, And I want to do a couple of things. Uh, I preached a series on the book of Exodus a few years ago. uh, And in that series, I talked at great length about slavery. Both the reality that God freed slaves who were in bondage in Egypt, and then the reality that he gave instructions on how to have a just society that included something like a kind of indentured slavery and protected slaves from abuse. And so the the type of slavery that I believe God permitted, although I won't use the word blessed, but permitted in ancient Israel is very different than the type of slavery that we think about in New Testament times or in American history. And if you have questions about that, I can either send you a link to the message that I preached a few years ago, or I can point you to some written resources. Uh, But that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, The the slavery of the Old Testament was very different. Not only that, slavery in New Testament times was somewhat different. 
And I want to qualify this carefully because sometimes you'll hear pastors say things like, slavery back then was very different. It wasn't as evil as what we had in America. And, and there's a mixture of truths there. It is true that slavery in ancient times could be very, very different. In fact, they had what we would maybe call like white-collar slaves. You could be a household manager and accrue great wealth. You could purchase your freedom. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul runs into a man that said, I purchased my freedom at great personal expense. And so it was possible. Uh, Not every ancient slave was abused because particularly if they were educated and were valuable to the estate, uh, ancient owners would not want to hurt themselves by abusing such a valuable asset. And yet it is undeniable that about one-third of the first century population lived in the bondage of slavery, and many of those people suffered in the bondage of slavery. The greatest source for ancient slaves in the Roman world was actually conquest. So as the Roman armies took different territories, they would send slaves back throughout the Roman Empire where they would be sold and oftentimes used for terrible tasks. Some of them were sent to live and die in mines. Some of them were sent to the Colosseum where they could be killed. And so it is not completely accurate to say that ancient slavery wasn't as evil as modern slavery. It could be every bit as ugly and evil. There was sexual abuse that could be part of it. And so I don't want to pretend as if the Bible is allowing something that's not that bad. For many ancient slaves, it was that bad. The question that I'd like you to ask yourself and to wrestle with this moment is, Imagine for a moment that you were perhaps a prisoner of war and you were sold and you're living in the city of Ephesus where there's this growing church, this community of people that love God. They're doing good works in public. They're happy. They're curiously happy. They believe that their savior died on a cross and rose from the dead and they believe that they have a promise of eternal life beyond this earthly existence. And someone tells you the good news that this isn't just a message for a particular group of people like the Jews, but this is a message for anyone who will believe. And you begin to understand that God loves you and that Jesus died not just for some set of people or freed people, but Jesus died for everyone, even slaves. And you begin to have hope that not only are your sins forgiven, but that you could be part of God's family and that you would not exist as a second-class citizen in the church. In fact, Paul writes elsewhere that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. And so you begin to understand the goodness of this gospel not only forgives your sins, but it elevates your status into being part of God's family and you have an eternal hope and an eternal future. And so you believe the message. And just like Zach was baptized, there was an ancient baptism. And there was a celebration in the church. And you sit under some teaching. Whatever time you have and you're able to attend church meetings, you come and you hear the church and and you hear preaching and you hear about how you have opportunities to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ within the church. Except the problem is you don't have any time to do that because your time is not your own. And you spend 
night and day serving an earthly master and you have no control over when and where you go and what you do when you get there because you are in a form of bondage. And so the longer you're part of this church, imagine for a moment if God never said a word to the slaves who believed and were saved. Would you feel as if the message were really for you? Or would you feel like an afterthought? Would you feel like all of these freed people are able to be part of the body of Christ and to serve the Lord in different ways with different gifts, but you can't really serve the Lord because your time is not your own and your resources are not your own? I suspect that if the Lord had not included 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the slaves who were part of the church in Ephesus would have struggled to understand what their freedom was really for. Because in reality, as the church is invited to ministry, that invitation may not have applied to them apart from these clear commands. Namely, that in their attitudes and earthly service, if they maintain a hope and a peace and a joy, and a diligent and a careful work, their lives become a testimony about the God who loves the slave and the God who has promised eternity. You see, the reason that I argue this, and my first point today is guarding God's name. Guarding God's name. The reason I'm arguing this is if you look at the second half of verse 1, Paul says the reason for this command is so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In other words, if an ancient slave became lazy and was angry and rebellious, Well, that would be no different than any other person. But if an ancient slave, understanding the hope of heaven and the love of God, in spite of abuse, was careful in serving the Lord, his testimony or her testimony would point to the fact that they had a hope beyond this world. Now, I want to say a couple of things about this, because the entire Bible speaks to the reality that God is a champion of the oppressed, that God loves to liberate those who are in bondage. That's why I asked Jameson to read that psalm, because in fact, some of the language of that psalm is distressing, but it's not distressing if you've been an abused slave and you hear that someone is coming to rescue you. God is a champion of the oppressed. God is a liberator of the slave. And you see that in the Exodus narrative when he rescues his people. You see it in little books like the book of Philemon, when Paul, writing an ancient slave owner, says you must welcome this man not as a servant, but as a beloved brother, and in fact, welcome him as you would welcome me. And yet many slaves did not experience earthly freedom. Instead, They were instructed to labor diligently so that your way of life became a testimony of your heavenly hope. So you remember the statement that I said at the beginning, the the New Testament cares primarily 
about eternally and heavenly freedom, and then secondarily about earthly freedom. Both matter to God. In some cases, the Lord set the captive free here on earth. And you get a sense of who our God is and what will happen when Christ returns. But in other cases, the Lord allowed lengthy bondage and used the lives of those who were enslaved as a testimony to the hope that it would extend even beyond the grave. Now, I want to say a couple of things very carefully here. Because I think there are limits to Paul's instructions when he says that those who serve under the yoke as bond servants, they must regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Because God makes it very clear that no one, slave or free, is ever to willfully sin just because someone else said so. So I believe that there are limits to the type of earthly obedience that he is talking about. And I'll give you two reasons for that. First, as I've mentioned, Exodus. In, in Exodus, the very opening chapters, Pharaoh recognizes how God is blessing his people and they are growing numerically and in strength. And he begins to fear that these people will outnumber the Egyptians and maybe lead a revolt. And so he begins to instruct the Hebrew midwives and says, I want you to kill every baby boy. You can let the women live, but kill every baby boy. And begins a program of infanticide. And what the scripture says is that the Hebrew midwives disobeyed Pharaoh's command. And that God honored them because of their courage. In fact, it names two women and and describes an exchange between Pharaoh and these two women who feared the Lord more than they feared Pharaoh. And it says that God blessed them and gave them abundant households because of their disobedience to an earthly master. So when your earthly master commands you to do something evil, Paul's command to honor them is not an instruction to willfully sin. There are limits to that. If you want a New Testament example, I'll mention the Apostle Peter. When they're dragged before the Jewish leaders and told, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore, the Apostle Peter says very clearly, you yourselves judge whether it's right for us to obey God or man. In other words, if we obey you and you have authority over us as the religious leaders today, if we obey you, we are disobeying God. And so given that choice, We will obey God and disobey you and accept whatever consequences come. So, guarding God's name as a believer under the yoke of bondage does not include willfully sinning because someone else told you to. And so I want to say very clearly that God is not blessing that kind of disobedience. There were terrible things that did happen in ancient slavery and they grieve the heart of God and Jesus will avenge those wrongs one day. But Paul's concern is more for those who are living, sometimes even under unjust circumstances, but have the opportunity to show the hope of heaven in their patient endurance and suffering. I also preached a series on 1 Peter earlier this year and Peter writes to those who live under the yoke of slavery and says very similar things. Let your suffering be a sign of the hope of heaven. 
Be patient in your suffering. Recognize that God will be your avenger. And right now, your patient endurance is a testimony to the hope of heaven. So number one, as we talk about guarding God's name, in an ancient context, this passage would have helped ancient slaves understand how to relate to their earthly masters, and it would have helped them understand you can serve Jesus even when your time is not your own. This is how your Lord and Savior Jesus wants you to live. And understand that even though you might be doing menial tasks all day long, whether you're working in a field, but that your service is ultimately for the Lord Jesus. And so you can do it with joy even as you weep and even as you are wronged. So be encouraged. There's an obvious application for those who lived under slavery in ancient times. But not only do we wrestle with these verses as modern Americans who exist with the persistent stain of slavery and the history of our country and how we've wrestled with race relations, we also wonder a little bit why this book continues to be relevant when even for us, slavery, at least as we've seen it and read about it in history, doesn't seem to exist. And I want to pause for a moment and say, these verses are precious comfort, not only to ancient slaves. I believe that these verses are still precious comfort to those who exist in modern day slavery. The reality is there are more people who exist enslaved today than there ever have been in human history. If you pay attention to the news, we've talked for a few years now about the Uyghurs who are enslaved in China, who are picking cotton manually who are doing several forms of menial labor, who have no time of their own. And the Chinese government oppresses them and looks for people that may identify with them by looking for things like, does so-and-so drink alcohol? Because if they don't, they might be a Uyghur. You might send them to a labor camp. Now, here's what I would suggest to you. Not only the Uyghurs in China, but... Filipinos who work as house servants all over the world who, in a sense, sell themselves into a type of indentured slavery and sometimes are exposed to horrific abuse and many other situations all around the world lead to people who are modern slaves. And if they are a believer in Jesus, these verses give them instruction in how to live. This passage is precious and presently applicable to those who exist as slaves. Now again, I want to say, God is not justifying the system. He's giving instruction to people who are stuck in it. And so there is a huge difference between God saying, this is good and moral and right, and God saying, this is how you serve the Lord Jesus when you don't have an option, when there is no other way. I want to point to one particular piece of evidence in this book that this is the case. Namely, when God gives instructions to men and women, he points to things like creation and says, look, this is the way creation took place. You can go back to Genesis and understand something about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman based on how God has created us. And so as a result of that, this is how we function in the church of Jesus. But when he talks about ancient slavery, there's no justification for it. There's no, these people are born this way. There's nothing of the sort. The reality is, 
ancient slavery was not based on a sort of ethnic racism. It was based on war. Sometimes it was based on poverty. And so the justification for it is not a part of Paul's instructions to those who exist within it. In fact, in many ways, the New Testament demonstrates that within the church, there can be no place for slavery. So these verses provide instructions for those who are caught within bondage. Not only that, the New Testament does also say things like, if possible, you should try to earn your freedom. Now that was possible for some slaves, but not for all. And so Paul did not make that a command. He didn't instantly try to undo it. Instead, he gave instructions for those who did not have that opportunity and could not work their way out of it. Imagine for a moment, if the church had demanded that every Christian master set his or her slaves free, but then those slaves had no means of support or no means of income. Oftentimes, the ancient church itself was persecuted and poor. They may not have been able to feed everyone. And so in this context, I believe God permits something that was not just as a temporary way of allowing the church to mature. In fact, you see similar things when Jesus talks about divorce in ancient times. And some people wanted to abuse his teaching on divorce and say that they had great freedom to divorce for any reason at all, simply unhappiness or deciding that they wanted to be with someone else. And Jesus says, God permitted this divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. It's not a good thing. It's not a great thing. But sometimes God allows things as part of our culture that one day will be no more. You know, in heaven, there's not going to be divorce. In heaven, there's not going to be that pain. In heaven, there's not going to be any slavery. In heaven, there will be eternal joy. There will be absolute happiness. But right now, God gives us instructions for how we can be part of his people, the church, regardless of our station in life. And so, in my first point here, I'm arguing that this command is meant to guard God's name and his teaching. And that not only has application for ancient slaves, and not only has application for modern slaves, it has applications for you and I. And here's how. If God has instructed someone who has no personal freedom that they must live in such a way that their hope is obvious in heaven, what does that say for you and I when we have a lousy day at work? We have enormous freedom. We have the ability to say, I need to take a mental health day and go home. We have the ability to change jobs. We have so much freedom. If God expects an ancient slave to live in such a way that people can look at his or her life and say, you're different. You must have a hope that I don't understand. What is it that gives you hope? How much more should you and I, who live with such great freedom, consciously try to guard the name of God and the truth of Scripture in our attitudes and in our actions? So my first principle today is not only is this truth for us as Christians, 
it, it applies broadly in multiple areas of life. Some of you are retired. You're like, man, I don't, I don't miss the frustrations of having a boss that wasn't always fair and decisions that weren't always wise. And man, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not there anymore. Okay, so retirees, I'm going to say for a moment, I don't care what you think about politically. I mean, I care a little bit. I want to see you have godly opinions. But I do want to say this. Whether or not you agree with the president, you have an obligation as a Christian to pray for him and to respect him. And so if you become known as a crank that is careless with your humor and criticism, you are not honoring someone who has authority over you. Instead, you're demonstrating that you don't really trust the Lord who allowed him to be elected And your hope is not really in heaven, it's here on earth. And that's obvious because of your anger and frustration. So if you and I, who exist as free people, have an obligation to show where our hope is in our attitude, friends, these verses that are written to ancient slaves apply to us. Let our hope be obvious in our careful respect. Now that's not saying you can't criticize or disagree. You certainly can. And in fact, I can think of instances with probably every president that has ever served in my lifetime that I would have disagreed. And I think in our system of governance, we have a right to publicly disagree, but let it be done with honor and respect so that no one could ever say, those Christians are just a bunch of hate-filled people. Look at those greedy people. Or look at those people that don't care about the unborn. Or look at those people that fill in the blank. Instead, understand that as you would honor an employer, we honor those who are above us in human government. And we have an obligation to be respectful even in our disagreements. Not only does God instruct us to honor his name, but the second principle here, the second principle here is that we have an obligation to bless other believers. We have an obligation to bless other believers. Verse 2 describes a situation where there's a believing owner and a believing slave. And he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, again, I want to stress, there are circumstances like when Paul is writing to Onesimus about Philemon, that Paul completely upends the relationship and says, you really need to free your brother because he is no longer just a useless person. He is a beloved brother in Christ. And in fact, he was never a useless person. But there are times when Paul allows this unhealthy situation to endure and gives time for the church to mature. And friends, in this situation, I believe there's a direct application for us. If someone who is in bondage physically is instructed to be a blessing to his brother who is perhaps not treating him justly, And there are other places in the New Testament where owners are addressed and told to treat their slaves with great care. But in this context, 
At the church in Ephesus, it seems like perhaps that instruction was less necessary, and Timothy needs to come alongside people who are wrestling with, man, is God taking care of me in this life? Why do I still have to do all of these things? And why don't I enjoy the freedom that others have enjoyed? And in that context, he says, between brothers and sisters in Christ, live your life in such a way that you are a blessing. And friends, if that applies in this unjust situation, it applies in the church and in Christian life today. You know, as a family, as a church, First Baptist Church of Holly, we may not always agree. And when that happens, we have an obligation to live in such a way that we bless one another. We may be frustrated by different things. We may even think that there are things that are completely wrong. And yet, if Paul instructs these people to say, look, live in such a way that you continue to bless one another. Be diligent and work hard and and labor for the good of your brother and sister. How much more would he say to us, live your life in such a way that you are a blessing to the people that you disagree with in your home church? Friends, I believe that these verses, although we may not experience life the way these ancient people did, they have application to us in our church today. And I want to close this message by leaving you with a quote from Frederick Douglass. Douglass was a young man when he first became a Christian. And in 1881, this escaped slave turned abolitionist intellectual published his final autobiography. And in it, he described growing up as a lonely and a destitute child. But at the age of 13, he heard a white minister preach that all people, slave or free, rich or poor, were sinners in need of Christ. And this is a direct quote. He said, I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me, but one thing I did know well, I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. And Douglas sought counsel from an older black Christian who told him to cast all of his cares upon God. And Douglas responded this way. He said, this I sought to do. And though for weeks I was a poor, broken-hearted mourner, traveling through doubts and fears, I finally bound my burden, lightened, and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, although I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everybody converted. Now, at the beginning of this message, I said, I believe that the New Testament's primary concern is first, eternal freedom, and then secondarily, earthly freedom. And that's what Frederick Douglass is saying here. He hated slavery more than ever, but his first desire was to have everybody converted. Friends, earthly freedom is meaningless unless you have eternal freedom. Unless your sins have been forgiven, this life is a short, drop, pointless existence. And yet, what Paul is describing here is not a permanent solution to an unjust system. He is describing a way of living in a hope of eternal freedom. And I would like to ask, do you have that freedom? Do you have that hope? When you experience injustice, are you able to say, Lord, I don't understand why you're allowing this into my life right now, but I trust you. 
Do you believe that injustice is temporary and that there's coming a day when the Lord will avenge all wrongs? Do you believe that you need the personal forgiveness of Jesus Christ so that the hope of heaven makes sense? Douglas says he knew he was wretched. He knew he needed to cast his cares on Christ. And I believe that would have been the testimony of every ancient slave who heard this instruction from Timothy. They understood that Christ had forgiven their sins and promised them heaven and that this life was in his hands and whatever he allowed in their lives was for their good and his glory. And one day those two things would be the same thing as they enjoyed his glory for all of eternity. Friends, if that's not your hope, I would urge you today to confess your sins before the Lord and to plead for his forgiveness and to find his mercy so that you can begin having hope in whatever circumstance you live in. As we passionately believe that the Lord is the champion of the oppressed, we want to work daily to see that lived out in our society, but we do so recognizing that that's a secondary hope and our primary concern is to have everybody converted, like Frederick Douglass said. And so friends, if you are already a believer today, I would ask you to recognize these instructions are in a sense for you. Let us live in our church in such a way that the teaching of God and the name of God are not reviled. If we fight and bicker and talk badly about one another, God's name is not honored. And if we fail to be a blessing to one another, the family of God no longer looks attractive. So as we live in the hope of heaven, let us seek to be a blessing to one another. Would you pray with me? Father, I praise you that as Jameson read in the Psalms that you are a God who is a champion of the oppressed. And that one day, everyone in bondage will be set free. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest in the hope of Christ. That our faith would be so firm in what he has done for us and promised. That we would not waver when we're touched by evil and injustice. But instead, our hope would be a testimony to the power of Jesus' new life. Father, I ask that you would help us as a church to guard your name and your reputation in the way we treat one another and in the way we live our hope in public. And I pray that we would do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.